Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Griffin, and I have the best job in the world, which is that I get to be one of your pastors. JD and I seriously have the best job, that we get to serve and lead this body of Antioch Austin. I love the things that God's doing here in this church, and I love the things that God's doing in this city. Is God moving in the city or what? Have you seen it? Yes. It's, you can be loud. This is not the quiet game. Like, it's going to be a long morning if you sit there stoic, I promise. God is moving in this city, and I hope you are aware. I have lived on numerous continents, actually, and I want to make sure everyone in here knows something, which is that we live in one of the most amazing cities on the planet, right? Who loves Austin? Austin, Texas. It is a blessing to live here. I love what God is doing in this city. In fact, J.D. and I, when we were talking about what we were going to do for our family vacation this year, we were thinking about different places we could go, maybe the beach, maybe San Antonio, maybe Colorado, kind of looking at different things. Camping was in our budget, but J.D. and I are not much on camping. I don't think pretending to be homeless is much of a vacation. But some people say thing, that's fine, that's fine, I won't judge you. But we were thinking, you know, what are we going to do? And, you know, we just said, you know what, let's just, let's stay here. Like, why go anywhere else? Let's just have a staycation. So this past week, we had a family staycation here in Austin. We went to the hill country for a few days. We hung out at Typhoon, Texas a lot. We went to the thinkery. We hung out in parks. We ate amazing food. The kids played a million games of Uno. They played a million games of Spies. Did y'all play Spy when you were little? Who played Spies when you were little? What did you play if you didn't play Spies? Come on. Well, I know you play Spy now because this is what it looks like when you're an adult. It looks like you're on Facebook and you see your ex is now dating somebody else. So you click on that person's profile and you snoop and you're like, is she cute? What does she do? Who are her friends? Where does she work? Right? Or you're on Instagram and you see, gosh, everyone was at this party. What was happening? Why wasn't I there? Right? You troll social media. Don't lie. You do it. You're spies. You're spies. Or you have a friend who leaves their phone in the room and they leave the room. And if there's not a password on it, You kind of peek and see what text they have maybe, or maybe you read your significant other's emails. Spies. I know you people. No one's going to leave their phone in a room with me anymore. I won't do it. I won't do it to you, I promise. Right? Or I know everyone does this one. You're at someone's house and you go into the bathroom and you look through the drawers, like you look through the cabinets and whatever, because you spy. We all spy. And when I was a kid, I loved to play spy. I don't know what y'all were doing. Obviously, I don't know, not playing spy. But it's a good game. You should bring it back. But I played spy like a champ. I had the game on lock. In fact, in fifth grade, one of my best friends, her name was Amanda. And uh, we were, or maybe it wasn't fifth grade. It was elementary school. And we played spies every time we got together. In fact, we, like, had a name for it. It was kind of like a TV show. And we called it Cops on Call. Yes. We even had a theme song, which maybe if you bribe me, someday I'll sing you the theme song. But I'm not going to do it here on a recording. But we would play Spies, Cops on Call. My name was Elizabeth Parker because when I was a kid, I always pretended my last name was Parker for some reason. But we would get together and we'd sing our theme song and then we'd go play Spies. Well, one day while we're playing Cops on Call, we notice a white van. Parked down the street. 
So we check it out, you know, doing our thing. And we notice it's this guy who would get in his van, and then he'd take this clipboard and sort of like toolbox thing, and he'd go up to the door, ring the doorbell, say something to whoever's at the door. He'd go into their backyard for like one or two minutes, then he'd come back to his van, and then he'd do the same thing to the next house. Hello, suspicious? Totally suspicious, yes. So we, you know, we're like, dude, we are cops on call. We have got to solve the case. So we, you know, crawl through the bushes, army crawl, shimmy across the brick walls of the homes, and we watch him do it down the street, down the street. And so, you know, we could tell, given the scenario, that what was happening is he was obviously a very evil, bad person who had a scheme that something neighborhood-wide, and we didn't know what he was doing, but there was something going on in the neighborhood. So we, you know, we needed some more intel. So we go up to the house, and we ring the doorbell, you know, little, eh, hello, you know, and said, hey, what did this guy just say? You know, what's he say to you? What do he do? And, and the lady's like, oh, he said he's with the utility company, and he's reading the meters, uh, and, you know, just checking whatever utility people check on meters, you know, <laughs> well, we weren't buying it. Obviously, that was not what was happening. So we asked another house, and they said the same thing. Everyone said the same thing. So we panicked because something's going on. So we figured, you know, after we watched them a little while longer, we figured out what was going on. And this is what we knew for a fact, given all the evidence was happening. This evil person was going into all the utility meters and planting bombs in all of them. Because at midnight, they were going to all detonate and the whole neighborhood was going to blow up. We were convinced of this. So we ran back to Amanda's house and her mom's there cooking dinner. And, you know, we're like, call the police. This is what's happening. The whole neighborhood's going up in flames at midnight tonight. She looks at us. She's like, what are you talking about? We lay out all the information. She looks at us and she's like, no. I'm not calling the police. I'm making dinner. Go play outside. Well, so then we had to, like, really take matters in our own hands. These are lives at stake, people. This is important things. So we went door to door through the whole neighborhood, rang the doorbell. Hi, my name's Elizabeth. This is my friend Amanda. There's a man who came to your house. And we told them the whole plan. We told them that there was a bomb in their meter box in the backyard. Literally, probably 50 houses. We spent hours making sure everyone was going to be safe. So we ring the doorbell and we said, okay, you need, to, you need to go and you need to check your meter box. And when you see the bomb, you need to either call the police and have them come or you can dismantle it yourself, whatever you feel comfortable with. But you need to do one of those two things because come midnight, you're going to be Jesus, okay? Like, so you need to handle the business. So, I mean, this is how sure we were. Amanda spent the night at my house that night because we were so convinced her neighborhood was going to explode. You know, tearful, goodbye, Mom, I love you. You know, she comes to my house. Well, guess what? Come morning time, we drive back into Amanda's neighborhood, and there's houses were still there. Nothing blew up, right? Now, whether that was because he was, in fact, a utility guy, like he said, or because everyone dismantled the bombs, like we said, we'll never know, which it was. I have my own theories, but you can judge for yourself, right? But Amanda's mom... And Amanda and I had very different reactions to the situation at hand, right? We saw all the facts and said, it's a bad guy, everything's going to blow up, run for your life. Amanda's mom looked at all the information, and in her naivety, 
did not think this was a big issue. She's like, it's a utility guy checking on boxes. How could people look at the same situation, the same facts, the same, you know, story, and have two completely different reactions, right? We looked at it and said, we've got to go do something. We've got to tell everybody. We need to call the police. Amanda's mom's like, I need to make dinner, and you need to go away. How can two people look at one situation and have completely different views? It's because they have a different perspective. And your perspective determines your process. Your perspective determines your process. And right now we're in the middle of a, uh, a series called Mind Games. This is on week three, and the anchoring verse for this series is Romans 12, 1 through 2. Let's read it together right now. I think it will be on the screen, or you can pull it up in your Bible. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The renewing of our mind, getting God's mindset, his right way of thinking. That's what we're talking about in this series. And in week one, J.D. shared about our pattern is the problem, right? That we have conformed to the pattern of this world, the pattern of greed, of selfishness, of pride, of lust, of jealousy, instead of God's pattern. And last week, David, uh, David, my husband's name is J.D., who talked about David. I know who I'm married to, okay? He talked about David and Bathsheba. Don't get nervous, babe. Don't, don't worry. Um, anyway, J.D. talked about David and Bathsheba and about how we can't forget that we're in a fight, that our best offense is a good defense, right? And he also shared about some pranks he pulled in high school. Is anyone here for that? Yes. Okay. Since this is the house of God, I feel like we need to be honest, which is if I had been in high school with J.D., I would have won the prank war. It's not a challenge. It's just a fact. I just had to my perspective. Oh, well played, well played. Anyway, so we talked about our patterns, the problem. We can't forget we're in a fight. And today I want to talk about our perspective because our perspective determines our process. And on the note of spies, we're actually going to look at a passage of scripture today that has to do with some Israeli spies that are in the wilderness, looking at the promised land. Anyone been in a wilderness before in your life? Looking at a promised land, but you're not there yet? That's what we're talking about today. And I want to give you a little bit of backstory. Um, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. And God sends a man named Moses to deliver them out of captivity and bring them to the promised land. So Moses goes into Egypt and through a whole slew of supernatural things, of miracles, signs, and wonders, convinces Pharaoh to let God's people go. So all, we know that at this point, it was 600,000 men, so then you add women and children, and you have well over a million people, that Pharaoh lets go. Well, shortly after, as the Israelites are having their exodus, they're leaving captivity in Egypt, Pharaoh changes his mind, and it's like, what was I thinking? These are all my workers. So he sends his army after them. 
Moses, they come to a sea, the, the army's coming after them. They come up to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites cross on dry ground. And as soon as they get across and the Egyptian army's coming after them, God drops the walls of water and knocks out the Egyptian army. I mean, this Israelite group of people have seen some stuff. It's legit stuff that they just went through. And now they're out of captivity and they can go to the promised land. They're free. They're ready to go. Now, if you're wondering what is the promised land that we're talking about here, it's a, uh, it's a patch of land that's got well-defined borders that God had promised to Abraham, who's the father of the Israelites, hundreds of years before. And in this scripture that we're about to read too, he re-says again, hey, this is your land. This is your promised land. This is what I'm giving to you. So that's what we're talking about with the promised land. Now, if any of you grew up in Sunday school, you know how long did the Israelites wander around in the wilderness? Forty years. Do you know how long it should have taken? Eleven days. As the crow flies, if you look at a map, it's a straight shot. It is an 11-day journey. Why in the world did an 11-day journey turn into 40 years? Perspective. Because perspective determines your process. Okay, so the Israelites show up. They come across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, and they show up on the border of the promised land. And that's where we're going to pick up in Numbers 13. It's a long chunk of scripture. I'm going to warn you, but I have faith in us that we can do this, okay? Can we just bear with and read some word of God? Okay. All right. Numbers 13. The Lord says to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. He reiterates his promise. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, and at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of, I don't know if it's Paran or Paran, whatever, the desert. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, which is a a giant. It's a tribe of people who were abnormally large giants. They saw giants. The Amalekites lived in the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up at once and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. The people there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, which is, again, the giants. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. One situation, two perspectives. All 12 spies agreed on the facts, right? The facts were God was not kidding when he said this was a good land. Everyone agreed it's flowing with milk and honey. It's abundant. It's rich. It's, you know, the fruit is is big. There's water. Everyone agreed that it was just as God said it would be. And everyone also agreed that there were enemies in the land. It was already occupied by enemies. 
one situation, two perspectives. Joshua and Caleb had the mindset that they could take the giants and occupy the land. The other ten said, we can't do it. Yeah, it's exactly what God said it would be. Yes, it's beautiful. It's everything we need. It's everything we've been dreaming of and believing for, but we can't do it. It's already occupied. One situation, two perspectives. So the people of Israel went with the second mindset, that we can't do this. It's occupied. And it left them wondering in the desert for 40 years because they didn't go in. One situation, two perspectives. Our perspective determines our process. And, you know, it's easy for me. I read it, and I think, they're so dumb. Like, they just had a million signs and wonders in Egypt. God just parted the Red Sea. And now they're like, no, we can't do that, you know. Who cares that God just said to go do it? We can't do it, right? But how often do we do that in our own life? You know, forget the fact that God provided money last month. Let's panic about this month, right? Forget that God has given me good friendships. I want to be friends with that person. I want that job, right? We forget what God's done in the past because we're terrified about what could happen in the future. And the Israelites went with that perspective. And we go with that perspective ourselves all the time. So... The question then becomes, how do we think like Caleb and Joshua? If most of us think like the other ten spies, how do we get a mindset and a perspective like those two? And that's what we're going to kind of break down today. When I look at this passage of scripture, I thought of three questions we have to ask ourselves when we're in the wilderness. Okay, if you're a note taker, you got three main points. I'm making it easy on you. Three questions to ask yourself when you're in the wilderness. The first question is, will I be on time? Has anyone ever had to wait for something? You get something biopsied and you have to wait for the report. You have a job interview and you have to wait for them to call you back. You go on an awesome date and then you have to wait for them to call you again. What happens when you wait? It's terrible. It's awful. You get stressed out. You get fearful. You get anxious. You get nervous. The situation grows worse and worse. You're waiting for that medical report, and you're, you know, you're like, I know. I'm, they're not calling me because it's that bad. They need to make sure all my family can be there to support me. And all these things, you know, your brain just goes in worry and anxiety. In verse 30, Caleb says we should go at once. And at the beginning of the passage in verse 1, God commands this is what I'm giving you to go. Why does God want us to go immediately? It's not because he's impatient. It's because he knows us. And he knows we will freak ourselves out if given the chance in waiting. We go at once. Because waiting makes our enemies and our giants seem that much larger. Have you experienced that? You have. And you know something else I just want to say? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. God said, I'm giving it to you. It's not if, it's this is the land I'm giving you. Go. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And the Israelites were disobedient. So instead of being in the wilderness for 11 days, you end up spending 40 years there circling the same issue, staying in the same rut, in the same pattern. But I want to be clear on something. The Israelites 
did end up in the promised land, even though they were disobedient. Because God always keeps his promises. The promise maker is the promise keeper. They do not have a shelf life. The promises of God do not expire. He will keep up his end. It's up to us to determine what our process is going to be like to get there. The Israelites entered the promised land. It just took them 39 years, 354 days more than it was supposed to. So will you be on time? That's your first question. Will you be on time? When the Lord nudges you and says, hey, let's deal with that. Let's go there. Let's step out. Let's take a risk. Let's get vulnerable with somebody. When God nudges you and says, hey, it's time to take some ground, will you be on time? The second question is, will you fight your ite? I-T-E. Will you fight your ite? Everyone agreed that there were enemies in the land. Let's, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, it's a whole bunch of ites. And I love what Joyce Meyer says. She says, everyone has their ite. You know, you're probably not fighting a Hittite or an Amorite, but maybe you're fighting singleness ite. Not enough education ite. Infertility ite. Lame husband ite. Infidelity ite. Family problem ite. Career problem ite. Abusive past ite. Addiction ite. Poverty ite. Illness ite. I don't know what your giant or enemy is that's occupying your land, but I do know that you have one. And are these real enemies? Yeah, they are. I know some of those sounded funny, but they feel real. If you're single and you want to be married, that feels like a real struggle. That feels like a real giant. If you want to have a child and you can't, that's real. If you come from an abusive past, that's a real giant. These things are real, but we're called to fight them because What we tend to do is we have a tendency to wait, and we think, oh, I just hope, you know, time will heal everything, so let's just wait a little longer. Or maybe they'll get tired, and they'll leave and go somewhere else, right? Or maybe I'll wait and then suddenly just get courageous and skilled enough to take this on. But we have to fight our eye. And it may mean that you have to deal with some shame for some insecurities you made, because sometimes the eye's are our own fault, right? Sometimes you make a bad decision in your marriage and you have to live with that giant. You have to live with that mountain on your landscape. Sometimes, no fault of your own, maybe you were raped or abused as a child. That's not your fault, but that's a giant of a past that you carry around with you. That God's saying, hey, will you deal with that? Will you go there with me? Will you let me heal that and get rid of that giant that's casting a shadow over the promises I'm giving you, over the things I'm speaking Or maybe it's something more tangible. You know, for me, one of the biggest ites I have to fight is anxiety. And I shared that this past fall in a sermon, that in my 20s, anxiety hit me really hard. I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And it started as something really small that was pretty insignificant. It was like, oh, well, of course I'm anxious. We're moving. Of course I'm anxious. As soon as the adoption ends, my anxiety will end because who knows, we tend to think like, oh, if my situation changes, my enemy's going to go away, right? And so we hop from situation, job to job, relationship to relationship, church to church, because we think if we just move around enough, the giants will get confused and lost and go away. But that's not what happens. And my anxiety didn't go away. It kept growing and getting worse. And I started occupying more and more space in here and in here. 
until it was really dominating the whole landscape of my mind. And I had to really look at it and say, oh, God isn't asking me to cohabitate with my giant. He's asking me to defeat it. He's asking me to take it on and to fight it. And so I had to. I had to get real vulnerable with some friends. I had to say, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to take this ground back. And I met with counselors. And I, you know, met with people and did healing prayer and prayed. And I met with doctors and got on some medication to help balance out some chemical issues that were going on. It's not easy. It is a fight. They call it a fight for a reason. But I got serious about possessing my land back. And whatever you may be in the process, you have to fight your giant if you're going to get in the land that God's promising you. So will you be on time and will you fight your ite? The third question, I love this one, am I a grasshopper or a giant killer? One situation, two perspectives. Am I a grasshopper or a giant killer? The ten spies, this is what they said, if you remember. They described the giants and their enemies in the land, and they said this in verse 33. We looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. We looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We looked insignificant to ourselves. We looked small and petty and incapable. They saw themselves as incapable. Caleb and Joshua saw themselves quite differently. They looked at the situation, yeah, there's giants, but we should go up and take possession of the land at once, for certainly we can do it. Not maybe we can do it, not I hope we can do it, not dear God, please, but certainly we can do it. Why? They weren't proud or arrogant, but they saw themselves through the lens and the perspective of God. They saw themselves through the identity of Christ, not the identity of their situation. They had the right perspective. When I was in fifth grade, I really liked this boy named Micah. Actually, all of us like this guy named Micah at church, which is funny because you look back and you think, why? But it's because we were dumb. When you're young, you're stupid. So it's what it was. We all liked Micah. So at church, now this was like, I don't know if any of you grew up like this, but Wednesday, you had Wednesday night church and you had a fellowship hall. Did anybody have a fellowship hall? growing up? Yeah. So Wednesday nights, everyone went to church. There was fellowship hall, and we would eat dinner and then hang out till you had youth group or whatever. So my friend Candace and I, we both liked Micah, as did everybody else. We're outside on the lawn, and two of Micah's friends come outside, and they say, hey, we're here because Micah knows y'all like him, and he likes one of you. My chances are 50-50. It's me and Candace. So, you know, we're like, yeah, I'm so pumped. And, uh, and his friend looks and says, and it's not you. He points his finger in my face and says, it's not you. And my friend Candace runs inside to fall in love with Micah or whatever. And I'm outside on the lawn. It's not me. Of course it's not me. And this little question mark pops over my head. This little insecurity, this little perspective of how I see myself begins to grow. Fast forward to eighth grade. Now, I lived in Siberia 
sixth and seventh grade, came back for eighth grade, which that was rough. But so I just came back from Russia. My best friend in eighth grade was named Kelly. She just moved from Honduras. So we were quite the pair. And I convinced Kelly, I'm like, it's eighth grade graduation dance. Let's go, right? So we go. We don't dance all night, but that's okay. She didn't dance either. The last song, though, this guy named Jason, who was one of the biggest nerds in eighth grade. I'm like, well, at least Jason will dance with me, right? Comes up. Kelly, you want to dance? So I kid you not, I'm the only one on the side of the dance floor. Everyone else is like to boys to men, you know, doing this. And I'm on the side because it's not me. I'm the runner-up girl. I'm the almost but not quite girl. I'm the average plain Jane friend of the awesome girl. And that question mark gets a little bit bigger. And fast forward through high school. Didn't play sports, wasn't great at anything. Comes time to like fill out your college applications. Special skills, teams, talents, nothing. Nothing. I founded the AP Philosophy Club at Midway High School. That was the one thing I could put in that space, which tells you a lot. So, nothing. Because I'm just that girl. I'm just the not much of anything girl. Go through college. I mean, I was smart, but I wasn't brilliant. I was cute, but I wasn't gorgeous. And I was fun, but I wasn't like the popular girl. Right? I was almost. Not the worst. Just almost. Go through college. Same thing. Time to fill out your work resumes. You know, and there's that space of awards and acknowledgments and skills or talents we should know. Nope. (laughs) No skill. No talent. No award or recognition. Just almost. Kind of. Just that girl. It wasn't until my 20s that I began to realize that that question mark had gotten really big over my head. And it was clouding my judgment and my perspective because I saw myself as almost girl. Just almost Liz, you know? Eh. We're glad you're here, but you're not like the make or break of the party. Right? And I had to really do business with God when I realized it was impacting the way I was responding to things. It was impacting my relationships. Because I didn't really expect that the things I did would succeed because I'm almost girl. I'm not the girl that actually makes it. I'm not the girl that really makes an impact. I'm the one who has like a great idea that someone else is going to go do way better than I could do. And God had to really show me that huge question mark I had above my head. And we all have them. Everyone has a question mark. One or two, I don't know. But you've all got them. And, you know, I was telling that to some friends of mine the other week, and they said, I would never have thought that. You're so confident and self-assured. And, you know, I even in high school and college, I was always confident and self-assured because I just had accepted it, you know? I wasn't insecure about it. Just, yeah, I'm just the almost girl. It's whatever. You know, it's fine. And I think that's the subtle deception of the enemy is that we make friends with our giant. Hi, I'm Liz. This is my insecurity, and we're here for your party, you know? Like, we make friends with it. We don't see it as an enemy anymore. We just see it as part of ourselves. Oh, yeah, I'm just the one who deals with anxiety or depression. I'm just the one with social anxiety. I'm just the one with an abusive past. I'm just the one who made some wrong decisions. I'm just the one with the addictions, right? We just make friends with it. But God didn't say, hey, befriend your giant. He said, kill it. Get rid of it. 
And I don't know what giants you're carrying, and I don't know what question marks you have above your head today, but I know that if God is for you, who can be against you? When I look at this room, I don't see grasshoppers. I see people who are going to take the land God's giving them. People who are going to take the land that God is putting in front of them. Caleb and Joshua, they didn't have those question marks like the rest of the Israelites. They were confident. They saw themselves the way God did. So how do we? How do you say, great, that's awesome. How do you do that? Right here. That's all you need. This book, you devour it every day. You read these words, and you slowly begin to see who God is and who you are. And when you have a thought, when you have a feeling or an emotion or an idea that is contrary to what this says about God or yourself, you call it a lie. And you read this every day, and this will shake you. That Romans passage we're talking about, transforming and renewing of your mind, it's right here. It's right here. This is what removes those question marks. This is what gives you the courage to say, you know what? I'll go now. I'll fight my giant. And I'll remove that question mark. I won't see myself like a grasshopper. I'll see myself as one who is victorious. Because if you want to be victorious, you can't think defeated thoughts. And this is how you do it. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand up with me today. And our prayer teams can go ahead and make their way up. God is promising a fruitful land for you. It's good. It's satisfying. It's everything you dream and hope it will be because he will be faithful to bring you to that place. But your perspective will determine your process. Will you be on time? Will you fight your enemies? And will you see yourself the way God sees you? Jesus came to deliver us just like Moses came to deliver the Israelites. And I believe he wants to deliver some of you even from being stuck in that wilderness place. Some of you need to do business with Jesus today on those three questions. And in a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And you can come up and get prayer from some of our prayer team. Or if you have something else, anything you need prayer for, we're more than happy to do that. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out one thing, which is that this entire journey began with freedom from captivity. And just like God sent Moses to set the Israelites free, to bring them out of bondage and slavery into the land he had for them, God did the same thing with us. He sent his only son, Jesus, to come to earth, to die on a cross and raise again so that he could pay the price of our sin and lead us out of our captivity and into his promises, into his life for us, into his purposes for each of us. And some of you here today may have never followed him out of that place. I'm going to ask everyone just to bow your heads. And if you say, man, this is awesome, but I've never actually said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you out of this place and into where you lead me. If you'd like to do that today, everyone's eyes are closed and heads are down. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. If you want to follow Jesus out today, awesome. I see the hands. Awesome. 
He's going to do it. He's going to lead you to a beautiful place. If you're one of the people who raised your hands, I want you to just pray with me to yourself. Jesus, thank you. You're my deliverer. Thank you that you see me exactly where I'm at and you take my hand and you walk me out. I'll follow you, Jesus. I will follow you out of this place and into your promises. I give my life to you. I choose you over all else. And Jesus, I just pray over my friends here today. I pray over the ones who just took their first step in following you right now. And I pray for ones who've been following you for years. God, may we be a people who go at once, who fight our enemies with courage and boldness and who see ourselves as you do. And I ask for everyone this morning, God, that you would lead us into our promised land, that you give each person needing courage, courage. God, would you come? Would you move? Would today be a marker in our journey into all the things that you have for us? In Jesus' name, amen.